to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm Bea Eggard. And throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. This month's series has been all about promoting social change with communities and people living and working in urban informal spaces. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the intersections between research and activism, both used for social change. With our guests, we will be seeking to understand how lessons from activist approaches can be applied within research and vice versa. We will also explore how power, participation and social justice fits within the wider research agenda when seeking to engage communities in informal settings. So we're set up for a very interesting discussion today. And to uh, help us through the discussion is my co-host Robinson. Robinson, how are you today? Tell us how your day is going and a little bit about yourself. Oh, thank you very much, Kim. I'm joining this podcast from Homabe County. Uh, it's in the western side of Kenya. It's pretty warm and nice, but I'm based in Nairobi. So I'm really delighted to be part of this podcast. And yeah, great to join these excellent advocates and af- activists who span across the globe. Uh, from Kenya to India. So really looking forward to this very interesting uh, conversation. So uh, I manage the research portfolio at LVCT Health, which is a Kenyan non-government organization. And we're currently implementing community-based participatory research in informal settlements uh, in Nairobi County. And we're using methods such as photo voice to work uh, with uh, marginalized people in communities to amplify their voice on matters that affect their health and their well-being. So looking forward to this very interesting podcast. Over to you, Kim. Thanks, Robinson. Uh, Good to see you again. So this episode's guests are uh, Vinod and Kimani. Uh, So welcome, Vinod. Tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do. Thank you, Kim. Uh, My name is Vinod, Vinod Kumar Rao. And um, I have been with uh, working with SPARC. SPARC stands for Society for Promotion of Area Resource Center. So we are an NGO that is based in India, and I've been working with this NGO for the last uh, 10 years now, um, largely committed to supporting a network of slum dwellers um, across India uh, that largely looks at issues around uh, constant evictions, which is a very common feature in dense urban areas in India as well as in other countries, um, and access to housing, water, sanitation. And very recently, with ARISE, which is Accountability and uh, Responsiveness in Informal Settlements for Equity. So that is the uh, new, um, uh, not new, been on it now for three years, but um, largely a new uh, form of working for us because it's an action research project that uh, that that we are trying to use in order to push for accountability in public health service delivery systems, um, uh, largely in, in, the, in, the, in the large metropolis cities like Mumbai in India, for example. And I'm very excited uh, to be on this uh, uh, podcast and have a great chat with all of you here. Thank you. Wonderful. It sounds like you have a real wealth of experience, both in research and activism. So ideally placed for this episode. Thank you very much. Kimani, welcome. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do, please? Yes, uh, thanks Kim, Robinson and uh, colleague Vinod. Um, I'm really happy to be 
in this podcast. Uh, my name is Joseph Kimani. I work as an executive director with Slum Dwellers International Kenya, affiliated to the broader movement of Shark Dwellers International, um, spread in over 34 countries, myself uh, and Vinod in that movement. I've been working in this uh, space for the last 20 years, started as an activist in human rights space and uh, brought in uh, by the movement to support in the secretariat. Um, uh, and within that short or during that period, I've acquired the level of education to to have done masters in community economic development um, and uh, community organizing, which is very deep in my heart, which I combine in, with activism and the work that I do. Yes. Wonderful. 20 years experience, 34 countries. It sounds like a, a large organization. I think, Kimani, just staying with you, could you tell us a bit more about um, Slum Dwellers International and the organization you work with? And what is always important to us, how do you connect with people and communities within those organizations, please? Yes. Um, so the organization, like I mentioned, acts, with, so, so it's a movement, Um uh, of slum dwellers, which is basically constituted of community groups. And these community groups are lobby groups, they are social groups, self-help groups, community um, faith-based groups. So, uh, Vinod, same question to you. You also work for an activist organization. Tell us a bit about the practicalities of that and how you connect people with people and communities uh, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So um, Spark, for example, was set up as an NGO that uh, was to support movement of slum dwellers. So some slum dwellers uh, in India already had an association called uh, National Slum Dwellers Federation. And um, there was a women's equivalent women's collective of uh, women from slums, and that is called Maila Milan. Maila Milan is um, in, in, in Hindi, which is one of the languages in India. Um, just translates into English as women together. Uh, and uh, this network of slum dwellers largely came together. And some of them, uh, Maila Milan did start with Spark, but the National Slum Dwellers Federation even predates formation of Spark in 1984, where these large organizations of community members that were formed um, necessarily to fight against forced evictions and negotiate with government for uh, security, security of tenure largely that. And Spark was formed as an NGO that could provide professional support and services to uh, institutions of um, communities and institutions of the urban poor, largely because, uh, you know, while the poor did have the agency and did have the um, capacity to, uh, you know, articulate their uh, needs and requirements, there was a need of professional support in order to help with, um, say, things like access to funding, uh, understanding government policies, deciphering um, uh, academic knowledge that was available uh, around evictions, uh, etc. And so Spark necessarily was formed as an institution to help with that. And so this is precisely the role that we professionals at Spark play of um, trying to, uh, you know, bridge that gap between um, what is actually being communicated as a policy and what knowledge exists there, largely in formats that are not necessarily, uh, you know, in formats that are accessible to people. 
and convert them into everyday knowledge that communities can use in order to develop uh, their own solutions around the kind of challenges that they face through and negotiate for uh, what they need to get through. Thanks very much, Vinod. Have the community been involved in research within Arise more recently? Uh, and how has that worked? So, um, yes, to, so the communities have been involved in the research uh, in Arise, but they've always been involved uh, in the development of knowledge for action. Uh, so I see action research projects as projects that generate knowledge for uh, generating action, right? So the whole, uh, the, the, all the set of research activities, which includes, uh, you know, say literature review, uh, uh, survey documentation, and systematic reviews, etc. All of those have a single, um, uh, you know, goal in mind: is that 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 knowledge that comes out of it needs to produce uh, methods or uh, pathways to produce action within the communities that. Uh, are being included as uh, within the action research space. Um, and uh, if we look at the way the, the federations have worked through all these years, for example, producing their own data, one of the things that the Slum Dwellers Federation, and this is not just India, uh, when I'm saying SPAR, but it is also a practice that the federations or community groups across uh, different uh, countries in, uh, uh, in, in that are affiliated with SDI's practice. And then this is the process that they've developed is collecting data about slums, uh, simple, basic, important data collection about slums, uh, added together with maps, uh, challenging government data, and producing evidence to prove their existence, to prove their requirements, and to prove the value that they bring um, to the city by inhabiting in the city. So essentially, this has been the kind of processes that were already familiar to uh, communities in, 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 in India as well. And um, what Arise did was it, it slightly oriented that entire activity around health, uh, to look at inequities around health, to look at uh, you know health as a challenge that people face. And as an anecdote, everybody knows that large number of people uh, now in the urban areas to suffer from chronic diseases. And uh, the effect of chronic diseases on multiple health issues that people face um, is becoming more and more evident and public, uh, it, it has become a public uh, sort of an epidemic and there, there are public investments that are looking at these. And this was something that was known to everybody. So, but there was no data around it. There was no knowledge around how to tackle with that, etc. And Arise is helping to bring that knowledge and uh, and uh, and give a it's like giving a subject and a language for the community federations to start building on and get access to um, things that are connected to health and improve health of people around them thanks very much and kamani if you could also tell us how slum dwellers international on a regular basis connect with communities and how they have also taken part in research processes that would be really useful yes uh, kim thanks um so the slum dwellers international movement um use mobilizes community using data in fact one of the cornerstone of the movement building is information and the one of the famous slogans uh, that you'll get across a catchphrase all over uh, the globe is information is power. So communities have realized the importance of using their own information to negotiate 
you know. So with information, and this has been interesting, that journey. First, the recognition by city authorities and private agencies and, the, and, 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 and state agencies to appreciate and recognize the visibility of the informal settlements or the poor. So this has been done through negotiations using community data. And the tool that the federations have developed over time, of course, have evolved, but one of it has been first to show visually where they are, where they are located, and this is information collected by themselves. And when they do this, they realize they possess certain level of power, the power to go and talk about who they are and not to be represented by anyone in doing this. And I think this has a history, as a history on how development uh, have been done in the past and communities feeling shortchanged through that ne negotiations of development. So when they use their own information, they become, uh, they, 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 they position themselves. And in fact, what the Federation usually says, we invite ourselves in the table, you know, on the table, to, to have that discussion happen while we are there. So they will hold the data in their hands and go to the meeting. And when people ask questions, they say, we have the answers because we know ourselves better. So that has been used. And um, what it does is that it converts a big movement, converts a critical group of community members to understand the issues more and articulate these issues in, in different forms, you know, um, either by developing solutions or by asking for resources from the state. And these lessons are shared across, you know, just growing the movement as it goes. Uh, when you hear community X, managed to get land because they shared their profile in data or enumeration, then another community is also triggered to do the same on this press. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Information is power. It's really interesting that, uh, you know, this whole series is about urban informal spaces. And the first step in that you kind of mentioned here is where are people and what do they believe and what do they want to get across and and having a position at the table to make decisions through that information and, and that knowledge, as both Vinod and Kamani have brought up is really, really important. So I think we're already seeing the links between activism approaches and research. But Robinson, I will hand over to you to explore that a little bit more. Oh, thank you, Kim. And this is really impressive to hear the you know the, the, the different opportunities for embedding activist approaches in research. It's really impressive to hear the work going on uh, in both Kenya and, and, and in India. Maybe I can start with you, Vino. Uh, what are some of the challenges you've experienced uh, while uh, embedding activist approaches in research? Um. I think one of the uh, one of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest differences I would say between um, activism and research is that research can be that way uh, uh, you know very limited to a specific time period, right? Whereas uh, activism is linked to a particular change, and that and and the timeline for that change is much more connected to uh, the kind of political climate we live in. Um, for example, if you're looking at, uh, you cannot make um, uh, access to housing as a research project um, with communities because access to housing is, a, is, is connected to many different things. It is about uh, policies and housing, the um, kind of larger economic situation in the city and, uh, you know, many different factors that actually uh, have, have a bearing on uh, whether people can get access to housing or not. So I think that uh, what the biggest challenge in embedding activism within research is basically with this whole 
timeline sort of commitment thing. Also, research cannot commit, perhaps cannot commit to a particular cause for uh, in a longer period of time. Whereas activism, that that basis of uh, being an activist in a particular uh, field or for a particular issue, is that you are committing um, lifetimes to get that issue actually resolved. Right. So I see that as the biggest um, difference that impedes the ability of one of the, the two merging with each other. All right. Thanks, Vinodit. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's a good perspective. Uh, and I'm, I'm also very curious about Kimani's response about the uptake of, of this uh, community-generated data uh, amongst the policymakers. Because, uh, you know, we, earlier on, we, talk, we talked about how community does the community profiling and uh, generate other forms of data within the community. So how, how do the policymakers take up this data? Yeah, thanks, um, uh, Robinson, for that question. Um, it's through activism. <laughs> they don't just take it. It's through the persuasion by the community members to really be able to, to be passionate about their information and be able to present it uh, to the authorities. And this, of course, finds most of the authorities. My experience is that when we walk to government offices, you'll find a well-meaning government officer who wants to support a community. And the first question you'll ask the community is, um, so where is this slum that you're mentioning to me? Where is it? And the community will say, oh, it's on this map here. Oh, who did the map? We did the map. Oh, you mean you have educated people in your community? So a conversation begins that changes the attitude, the perception of this government person uh, over that community. And slowly you see this person inviting other officers around him or her yeah to just find to 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 experience this exciting moment you know where a community is coming to them with their data with their information and negotiating at that space so you find something changing out of that drastically that the power shift you know all of a sudden there is a respect that these people are coming they know how many schools they have in their community they know how many hospitals are there. They know how, how many people are using one facility, uh, one toilet. So that the, the description of this information presented by women, you know, and, 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 uh, and most of the time I find it more interesting when women do this because they have a way of connecting the real issues with their lives to, this, to, to, to the government officers. It's different from a, a technical person in that meeting. While I'll be in that meeting talking about qualitative research, uh, analysis, percentages, uh, the community will give me a moment and then after I've shut my mouth, then someone will speak about how cholera affected them, how much they are paying, how much pain it is without electricity in the, in the community. And all of a sudden you see emotions changing and a conversation picking in a different way. So, and, and that's a form of activism by community members using their own information to position, to talk about who they are, in a way that you cannot refuse if you're a government officer. Wow, that's really fascinating, uh, you know, about the power shift and the surprise and excitement that comes with, uh, you know, community members presenting their own data. So, Vinod, I know many researchers are really serious about empirically generated data and they want to have all those statistics, but then hearing from what Kimani is talking about and the and the, your experience in Mumbai, 
uh, how do you you know what lessons should researchers borrow uh, from these activist approaches? Well, I think um, one of the things just to add to what Kimani was saying is that um, change that needs to be brought about at uh, you know is largely always local. Change usually starts very locally, and for local change, the emotions are uh, you know much more of an important subject than the knowledge or information as well. So um, when an officer sees uh, uh, women articulating about an issue or um, talking about an issue and uh, with very with great confidence, it is an emotional connection between the community members demanding or explaining something and the officer making a decision. Versus when you look at large policy development, large policy development could largely be uh, pushed or uh, sorry not pushed but. Uh, kind of driven by um, uh, you know uh, analytical data and, and quantitative and both quantitative and qualitative data but for that too um, but when it comes to actual change on the ground it is largely an emotional connection and that's why i think that uh, both research and activism have their um, have their roles to play in bringing about a change and uh, in in the essence of uh, you know using the data it is very useful now for example uh, there is data around like i said chronic diseases right a lot of people have chronic diseases there is research around uh, you know women uh, in engaged in unpaid care work because of which their health actually uh, takes a back seat and their healthcare takes a back seat within the family uh, there is research around it and when uh, when we speak to uh, speak to say the women federations and women from the communities about things you know research says this and they all say that yes it's, that's absolutely true we can we can relate to that uh, to some extent they feel that we know what the issue is and that's being communicated so they acknowledge that but they also feel that uh, you know we've never looked at some of these issues in that manner right that you can actually quantify the amount of uh, uh, you know resources that a family drains because of, um, say, a health uh, issue in the family, or uh, you know that that the woman is woman is unable to get access to healthcare. Uh, so, so it is a two-way thing. It is so. Act, so researchers, for example, learn from activists' uh, work um, in accessing something, and that's documented, right? Sometimes researchers just document the social movement, um, and social movement is completely, uh, you know, an activist process. Um, but there, uh, the documentation of social movement helps in understanding the elements that a social movement needs in order to thrive. And somewhere else, that is used as a knowledge to kind of support a social movement to go ahead. Right. So, so I think there is that symbiotic relationship, and there is no definitive path of saying, um, you know, how we learn from each other and what what we give each other. But the the ground rule is that there has to be basic. Um, uh, in a sort of equity in that relationship between research and activism, not researchers and activists, but in between research and activism, on what is the what is the role that we are playing in a particular context. Mm, all right, uh, and, and and you know, let me just follow the same thread of local knowledge, and is the risk of local knowledge being shaped by dominant group dominant groups in the in the community, and how do you? How do you break through this dominance, uh, you know, in the community as you as you're getting the local knowledge? Um, I think uh, it, that's that's very tough. That's a, it's a very tough thing really to achieve 
uh, in the very first go uh, it does take time now for example if you look at community uh, groups and and community leaderships they will largely come from people who are articulate who are um, sort of dominant within their own community and it's always convenient to associate with people like that because then you can get your point through it's like you convince them and then you have the whole community come in but that does not necessarily mean that it is the voice of the entire community so the problems there exist but um, i think the the value of uh, community processes where uh, you know you you actually put the power in the hands of communities to make decision on uh, kind of makes those tensions less lesser and lesser severe uh, if you're using community groups and the dominant groups within the community as your pathway to communicate a particular action uh, then you do stand the chance of them actually uh, filtering out stuff but when you let communities develop that process they have their own ways of holding each other accountable so even if see even if there are dominant and uh, less dominant groups they've been coexisting right and that coexistence itself shows that there is uh, and that those are perhaps the way ways to survive within that community and that those are the uh, techniques of survival that they have learned over a period of time um, and that needs to be acknowledged to a large extent and uh, you know the decision making is left to the community um, you have lesser chances of not that it completely eliminates this problem of power but it 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 largely does reduce the power of a uh, problem of uh, you know powerful people kind of hijacking the whole process and saying that this is what needs to be done yeah well, that's very insightful, you know, and, and Kimani, I'm very curious, uh, in, in, the, in the context where you work, uh, the federations, who, who are the dominant groups in, in the local context and how do you shape, how do you shape the local knowledge uh, that you present uh, to policymakers in, through research? Yes, um, they vary. I, I mean, local the dominant groups will vary depending with the issues. Uh, when you when communities map who the actors are, who affects them, what issues is, is, is of concern, they will end up, for instance, in one instance, if it's about evictions and a threat to, to, to their tenure, uh, a dominant characteristic there will be the speculators and the people who have the interest in that, on, on that land. They could be amongst the community members, and this could be few, say, structure owners, sometimes a lot of times men yeah, who have desires to accumulate more wealth uh, against the majority uh, who do not have the possession of either land or the property. If it's about health, they will also look at who the providers are of this health. Could be local providers who are taking advantage of lack of facilities from the government and private develop uh, uh, providers coming in with poor quality service that the poor have no choice other than just to use, you know, so that becomes even another problem. It could be an issue of gender violence, you know, and the, 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 the vulnerability of, of women in, in that context, which we experienced, especially during the COVID period, uh, young girls getting impregnated, uh, defilements happening at the household level, so dominant characters are at the household level or at a small subcluster level of a community. They're at a very big systematic uh, space, you know. When you talk about issues of waste management where you have industries surrounding these communities in conflict over time uh, on the pollution. 
So it, it evolves. And what communities have learned to do is to deal with issues that they're able to manage at their species. And once they do that, the confidence grows to bigger issues. Rarely will you find a full energized community dealing with a, with a monster in their area if they've never practiced to, do, uh, to deal with either an issue of cleanup, you know, an issue of collecting garbage at their settlement level. So, you, so these things will always change and vary depending with what uh, communities are, are dealing with or what some of the groups within the communities are dealing with. We are seeing a little more of social uh, groups emerging as social justice groups. And this could be a group of just 20 members of a cluster of 8,000 families and 20 committed, determined individuals coming together to say, we want to use uh, our space and our collective to champion against uh, injustices within our sector. Yeah, we have found that emerging. So sometimes uh, you, it could be an issue of even one champion emerging out of a climatic issue, you know, uh, an environmental justice uh, champion emerging and saying, I'm disappointed that this is happening. And this is an individual against a whole community. So uh, the dominant characters can be a community against even an individual in the, in, in, in the sense of uh, what interests they're also pre, uh, protecting. I don't know whether... Robinson, I'm, I'm, I'm on, on, on where you uh, um, can see Vinod wants to respond also to this. Absolutely. Carry on, Vinod. No, I just wanted to add that, uh, you know, on this question of power and saying, uh, uh, and, and this external viewpoint of saying who, is, uh, who exerts more power on each other. And there's a very good example from that uh, Sparks founder, Sheila Patel, always says that. Uh, so when she started working with um, women from the pavements, pavements are those uh, on the side of the road for people to walk on. And uh, in, in Mumbai and in many cities in India, it's very characteristic of people to uh, the most marginalized people within cities to kind of use pavements as their living spaces. So when, when Spark was founded and uh, she was working with them, uh, they, she had been approached by many other uh, women's rights uh, groups and said that, um, that all these women are being abused by their husbands and they face uh, domestic violence all the time uh, and you should work on them. And uh, when she asked the women, they said that, yes, but that violence is in my control. But what about the state violence? We keep getting evicted. That is not in my control. So the, the, the example that this actually says is that how uh, anybody in a community views who is more powerful over what and on what power do we have our control on to be able to change that? It's a very internal process. And externally, we often make uh, sorts of assessments and think that this is, this is what it should be, but that's not necessarily true. And that's why I was saying that, uh, you know, you always have to let community processes to evolve. And these are not processes that are devoid of risk. They are full of risk. And the ability of activism to allow those risks to take those risks, to uh, you know face those risks and invest into it and uh, commit to it is what makes sometimes that different from a research, which uh, which I think with a lot of uh, different processes uh, does is largely risk covered. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, this is a really interesting conversation. Uh, I, I could spend a whole day having this conversation. So what I can do is let me invite uh, Kim for the rapid fire session. Thank you.
Gunnar and Kim. Thanks very much, um, Robinson. So we can clearly understand that, um, as you have both pointed out, knowledge is important for communities and, and collecting data and research um, strengthens their position when they speak to, to policymakers. We've also learned that emotions are central to this and the community are very good at putting uh, emotions together with research to put forward a case. So research and activism seems like a very natural pair, but we've also heard that some of the challenges, so research is time limited and activism, you know, goes on for many years. We've heard Kimani involved for 20 years and since the 1980s, you know, Park, Spark has been moving forward. So my question to, uh, to you both is what advice would you give for organizations that have an activist uh, movement approach when they're working with researchers? And what can researchers do to better work with activist organizations so that they connect in a way that is useful for communities? Um, Kimani, let's start with you. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> quite an interesting uh, question. Um, what, what can activists do um, to work with researchers uh, or even vice versa? And I think the the... The, the the most important thing here is to allow communities to be at the center of any research as much as possible. Let communities be the drivers of the research. It's there if the information is intended to come from themselves, let them have a bigger share of driving the process. That way, the conversion to activism happens in a very organic way. Uh, the other side of our, uh, the communities also they need also to help researchers. Uh, uh, construct and design uh, tools that will be able to enable them advance their issues to the next level, so that the research itself is not uh, it's not separated, you know, from what the communities are doing and living. Thanks very much, Vinod. Anything to add? Yes, I think both research and activism, as I said, have their own roles to play, uh, and first bringing in equity between them is important. Uh, and that they feed into each other. It's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, activism benefits from the knowledge that research brings and research definitely benefits from the uh, natural morphology of how change happens in the society through activism. So, um, so I think we have to bring equity and bring them on the same power lines and acknowledge each other and feed into each other. Thanks very much. I think it's really important that that's been brought up. And I think, you know, Arise is a, a research consortia that works with activism in, in a very unique way. So hearing your views on that is really, really important. So generally, we ask this last question in all our episodes, what more can researchers and scientists do to connect with communities and people in a meaningful way? Uh, Vinod? Um, I think, um Remove all your pre-bias before you engage with the community and start afresh. That's okay. We have knowledge, but uh, let's start afresh with the community. Every community is unique. Every community process is unique. Every community's mode of existence in any particular geography and their living is unique. And that needs to be acknowledged before we start dwelling upon more knowledge on it. Thank you very much. Kimani. Yeah. Uh, very much what Vinod have said, and the critical question is, why are we doing the research? And um, 
if if those that question cannot be answered by the community members why you are doing the research not you telling them why you are doing it then your research is misplaced in a way and, and that's a nice uh, uh, no offense to researchers um is to just ensure that whatever research you design in a community must be to help that community move from the point that you're entering the community to the point you exit that community. Thank you very much. I think that's a wonderful space to uh, end the episode. So to say thank you very much for for taking part and and giving researchers and scientists some insight into working with activism and activist organizations. This has been really valuable. Thank you once again. And thank you, listeners, for joining us Uh, once uh, as usual. Look in the blurb to see any links from Vinod and Kamani where they will share some of their research and you can read a bit more about them. Thank you, everyone. See you next time. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.